For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The Oklahoma Supreme Court orders the Secretary of State to accept and count all of the signatures from a criminal justice initiative petition. Supporters say they have 260,000 signatures and want to see State Question 805 on the ballot this year. Neva, what is State Question 805? Well, basically, the state question would prohibit the use of prior felony convictions uh, to enhance sentences for nonviolent crimes. And this is uh, this is an effort that's been underway for uh, quite some time. And as you as you said, the signatures uh, were uh, really uh, uh, in large measures, large measures secured earlier this year. So when the uh, process was suspended, the signature collection process was suspended on March 18th by the Secretary of State. That's where everything went into limbo. But now with the court uh, making this uh, determination earlier this week, it sets in, in motion the opportunity for for these folks to potentially still get it on the November ballot. They have to have all of the uh, verification of signatures, all of the legal questions have to be uh, resolved by August 19th for this to happen. So we're still on a very tight track to get it done. But at least um, at least we now are seeing some movement again with respect to the state question. Ryan, 260,000 signatures. All they needed was 178. Are you surprised by how many signatures they gathered? Well, and, and let's keep in mind, too, that they, they gathered all of these signatures in a uh, in a uh, fewer period of days than they normally otherwise would have. I mean, they were still out collecting signatures and, and the campaign actually voluntarily suspended signature collection in light of the pandemic's outbreak in Oklahoma because there was there were real concerns about putting uh, Oklahoma voters that would sign the initiative petition at risk, uh, putting people that were out collecting those signatures at risk. So um, you, you didn't want anybody part of the campaign to to contribute to the uh, to the camp to the pandemic spread. So they voluntarily the campaign voluntarily suspended uh, signature gathering. And then shortly thereafter, the secretary of state and the governor said no signature collection on any campaign. So they got two hundred and sixty thousand plus signatures in a shorter period of time uh, than they otherwise would have been allowed. And so they they've been wanting to turn these in for a while now. Uh, the Secretary of State's office said that they didn't believe that they could accept them and count them in a way that was safe. Um, the Supreme Court overruled it and said they felt that there were uh, there were reasonable steps that the Secretary of State's office could do uh, to count these safely and to, to make sure that uh, the proponents of this initiative are able to get it on the November ballot. Because the, the Secretary of State's office's duties here, uh, as the as Supreme Court said, they're not discretionary. These are ministerial duties that are prescribed by the Oklahoma Constitution and statute. They've got to count these signatures. Um, so I anticipate in the, in the coming days, we'll see some announcement from the Secretary of State's office as to how they're going to go about this signature counting process. And as Neva said, this August 19th deadline, that's not some arbitrary date. That's that's the date that ballots got to go to the printer uh, in order to get them ready. So you've got to know what's on the ballot and what's not on the ballot by August 19th. Um, and just you know, real quick, the you know, even though the Supreme Court said that the Secretary of State's office should uh, start counting, they didn't say anything about lifting the ban on signature collection for other initiatives that are sitting out there in the wings. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that ban uh, or that prohibition on signature collection should last well into the future. I mean, lifting that uh, versus counting are two different things that the Secretary of State's office and the governor should be considering. So 
count the signatures you've got, but still put a hold on all other signature collection. Neva, do you support the state question 805? Is this something you could support? Well, I think it, I think at this point, I mean, in terms of, um, of criminal justice reform measures, I think, you know, by and large, I have long been a supporter of criminal justice reform. I think uh, it will be interesting in the in the context of this state question. Uh, there does appear to be a movement afoot uh, for uh, for a campaign uh, that would oppose this. Uh, many people uh, believing that uh, uh, that the use of the uh, uh, prohibiting the use of the prior felony convictions uh, is going is going too far. So this will be this will be an interesting campaign to watch if it uh, materializes in November. Well, lawmakers returned to the Capitol one last time to overturn six vetoes by Governor Stitt, including the four budget bills. The Republican-led legislature overturned ten of nineteen vetoes from the governor, possibly the most in history. Ryan, are you surprised by how many vetoes got overturned? Let's let's start at the outset, Michael, by saying we're taping this on Friday or taping this on Thursday. Um, you know, a lot of our listeners hear it on the air uh, on on Friday. If you if you're if you're interested, listen to the podcast, catch the whole episode. Right. Uh, you can get that on Thursday afternoons. Get ahead of everybody. But uh, shameless self promotion there uh, aside, uh, out of the way, um, you know, they could still come back. I mean, they, you know, there's there's a they, they did not adjourn sine die last week. Uh, that doesn't happen until Friday. Uh, of this week. So today, whenever this is on the air, um, so they could come back. And there's still a couple of bills, uh, House Bill 3228, uh, which is a big omnibus uh, marijuana, uh, a medical marijuana bill that you know, brings a lot of really important um, reforms to the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, among other things, um, that they could still come back and override the veto on. That's wildly unlikely. But you know, listen, you know, zombies live at the Capitol <laughs> and on AMC. And so you know, don't count them out until... until uh, until they're really, really done, which is tomorrow at five o'clock. Um, yeah. It's it's yeah. pretty historic. I mean, you know what we saw with the the number of bills being vetoed and the the dynamics last week on the House floor um, really showed the the chasm between Republicans in the legislature and the executive branch and the governor right now. There there is a real uh, there is a real divide between the uh, those two branches. And, you know, in spite of some, you know, very magnanimous words from Speaker McCall and Senate President Pro Temp Greg Treat, who, you know, seemed to be signaling that they were ready to make peace with the governor, um, that seems really unlikely. And I, I suspect that the, the tensions from this legislative session are going to color, uh, you know, many, many decisions between now and the 2021 session. Neva. Well, I think it is interesting when we talk about legislative um, uh, overrides. It's not uncommon. And, he, and we talk about uh, the 10 of the 19 vetoes uh, being overridden uh, this past week. But really, when you take it in perspective, and I think Speaker McCall said this well when he said that um, he suggested that there could have been even more vetoes that could have been overridden, but that the decision was made to select those bills that uh, House and Senate leadership could be in agreement on that were important to the state of Oklahoma. So I don't think this was a, a punitive action of we're just going to override for the sake of overriding. But I think it was looking at these uh, bills that finally uh, came to the uh, came to the forefront and making a decision and truly making it a decision based upon what they believe was in the best interest of all Oklahomans. So um, I think that 
with respect to the give and take between the governor and the and the legislature, I think it does, as we've talked about before, set the stage for some interesting dynamics uh, as we move through the summer and the fall and the campaign season to see how the governor engages with the lawmakers uh, outside the uh, session itself. And I do agree with Ryan that while we may not see any action before five o'clock on uh, this last day of the legislative session before they sign a die, we very well will see some special uh, session action in all likelihood, given some of these things that are still on the table and, and lawmakers and the governor are focused on. When it, you know, we didn't talk about any of the particular vetoes, but one in particular, I, well, I talked about House Bill 3228, which is, you know, seems to be collateral damage. You know, the medical marijuana reform bill seemed to be collateral damage. Everybody, uh, Republicans, Democrats in both the Senate and the House liked the bill. Uh, uh, the, the medical marijuana authority liked the bill. Industry liked the bill. Patients liked the bill. Um, seemed to be collateral damage in the fight between the legislature and the governor. But one that was was you know even maybe perhaps more confounding was Senate Bill 1046, which would have funded the governor's Medicaid expansion alternative program that he pushed as a competing uh, package against a state question 802 that would expand Medicaid through the Constitution and at the ballot uh, possibly in the uh, later this year. So you know the governor's competing plan now is really off the table. Um, you know, he he put that out there. The governor, did, the legislature, Speaker McCall and Senator Treat, you know, they talked about we did the heavy lifting. This wasn't an easy deal. We put it on the governor's desk and then he refused to sign his own bill. We're not going to lift it again for him and help him override his own veto on his own bill. It was it was really one of the more bizarre vetoes I've ever seen. Yeah. Neva, he so I guess he said that it wasn't enough. So that he vetoed it because it, it didn't fund the whole thing. I, and, and I think that that was the that was the point that he said. But I, I agree with Ryan. And I think uh, this was probably the most um, astounding <laughs> action that the governor took. I mean, this was something the governor asked for in his state of the state. This is something that lawmakers, as Ryan said, uh, did the did the heavy push on, uh, made it happen. Um, it, there's been this ongoing discussion of how how do we deal with Medicaid expansion now that it's on the ballot? I mean, what the implications of that are, given the fact that it has the constitutional component to it if it passes. But for the governor to now basically uh, put the state in a place where there's no plan, uh, most believe that not having something in place uh, pretty well negates the uh, application that the, that the state has uh, um, in Washington setting that would uh, that would put put sooner care 2.0 uh, basically as something that would allow for an alternative version of expanded coverage for uh, low income adults so again uh, what what we saw and I think even uh, what we uh, uh, heard from some on the on the house floor was that uh, that they were incredulous that the governor was taking this approach so um, and I agree that in in the final days there are always these twists and turns. And and as and as uh, uh, Ryan talked about the marijuana veto, um, I think uh, I think we have a situation in in that instance where uh, the House and the Senate. I mean, there just weren't the votes for the over. There just weren't the votes for the uh, override. And uh, the House said they had the votes. Uh, uh, pro tem treat said uh, he wasn't sure the votes were there uh, in the Senate. So it is something that clearly um, 
is still out there lingering. And I think we, you know, very well could see potentially some action. We just don't know in what context it may come about. If a special session is held, could they override the vetoes or does that have to or does that or do the vetoes die at this at sunny die? My my understanding is that the vetoes are going to die at sunny die, okay, uh, or that the veto o- override authority would die at sunny die. That's and what that, I thought. Um, I mean, I could be wrong about that. Somebody proved me wrong. Uh, you know, I but that would some be some legislative person the, out there who knows exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, please, you know, yeah, you know, all all of our all of our wonderful uh, political science and parliamentary procedure uh, uh, nerds, uh, fellow nerds, uh, that's yeah. not pejorative at all, that are listening to this, you know. You know, send me send me a tweet. Let me know that I'm wrong here. But my sense is that they would die at sine die, and that if there were going to be something in a legislative session or a special session, that it would have to be you know a renewed piece of legislation. Um, and you know that's, uh, but I think that that's possible. I mean, everything from budget matters to marijuana reforms could be on the table for a special session, um, especially given. You know, the you know, with the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority in 3228, they're saying a lot of these reforms are necessary. Um, you know, we, we need to have this to continue the administration of one of the more successful medical marijuana programs in the nation. But we got to have this to move forward. And you know, that could be on the table as a special session item, in addition to things like you know, budget matters as you know, revenue numbers continue to change throughout the year. Well, and one of the implications in 3228, I believe, is the fact that you have uh, the number I've heard is 270, maybe somewhere in that vicinity of of, uh, businesses that cannot get their licenses renewed across the state. Uh, If this bill uh, is, if if a bill like this doesn't come into uh, effect because it would allow them to be grandfathered in, or at least that was the language in um, in this House bill. So there are some there are some folks. I mean, obviously, that are very focused uh, in, uh, in in trying to make something happen. And and I think that this is one of those. I think this is one of those instances where there are a lot of folks statewide that are generating a lot of intensity and a lot of communication with these with these lawmakers. And we'll see what that what effect that really has. Uh, uh, in the political season that we're in. And if that's not fixed in a special session, every one of those 200 plus businesses that stand to lose licenses represent a piece of litigation against the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority. Right. So, you know, that's, you know, hundreds of lawsuits that could be filed against the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority in the interim if the legislature doesn't do something. And that that could be just devastating to their ability to you know continue to administer a really important program for the people of Oklahoma. The head of the agency dealing with Oklahoma's skyrocketing unemployment resigns her post. Robin Roberson announced her decision to leave as executive director of the Oklahoma Employment Security Commission after she says she was encouraged to step down. Ryan, she's only been on the job for about five months. Why was she being asked to leave? Well, you've got uh, huge numbers of Oklahomans that have applied for unemployment, uh, both under existing programs and under the extend, extended program that was passed as part of the CARES Act by Congress, that still haven't received their benefits, um, that are out there hurting, that we have a huge number of fraud claims uh, that haven't been resolved. I mean, I, I know for a fact I had a fraud claim that I'm dealing with, uh, and I reported it and I haven't heard anything back. It's been weeks. And, you know, that's, you know, I'm sure that there's there's an avalanche of that at that agency. You know, those those five months uh, probably feel like, you know, 500 years, uh, you know, and, and you're <laughs> and you're dealing with, you know, you, you've got an administrator who is dealing with this enormous crisis at the state level, but also dealing with, um, you know, personal health issues. I mean, she 
uh, it's been reported uh, publicly. I'm not just saying it, it's been reported publicly that she postponed, uh, I think, a double mastectomy uh, as a result of a breast cancer diagnosis. So that you know, um, yeah, in, in the middle of this pandemic, I mean, that's that's an enormous amount of stress and pressure on on any one individual. Um, I think that you know, if we're going to change this and turn it around, you need to put some real subject matter experts on the ground. Uh, Shelly Zumwalt has been tapped as, I don't know if she's still interim she's or if she's now being director. considered the director. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know if that vote has, has happened just yet, but you know, she's coming in to, to fill this role now. Um, and you know, her background is in communications and public affairs for the most part. Um, so it, I think that it's a, it's a big challenge. Uh, I wish anybody success there, but it seems a, a strange pick, um, um, for somebody that needs to come in and run a very technical bureaucratic agency that's trying to you know, retrofit technology that's way out of date and at the same time fill this enormous amount of claims and deal with an enormous amount of fraud that's being reported into the system right now. Neva. Well, I think I think it is not a total surprise the uh, selection of this new interim director uh, in the aftermath of the meetings that have taken place by the OMES or by the uh, Oklahoma Employment Security Commission board. Because when you look at it, one of the things that they have done is they've turned over control of the information technology services to OMES. And OMES now uh, basically uh, in charge of uh, consolidating these uh, business practices into, uh, into OMES from the uh, uh, Employment Security Commission. So all of this taking place under um, the governor's right-hand uh, man, uh, Dave, David Ostro, who is the Secretary of Information and Technology, and the person who uh, uh, has had uh, uh, Shelley Zumwalt has been working for uh, at OMES. So that that close working relationship and the comments that uh, uh, that uh, uh, Ostro has made publicly about uh, believing that she has the the right skill set and the enthusiasm, the work ethic to uh, uh, to uh, take this challenge on. So I think that's where I think that's where we see a case of someone tapping a person that is a uh, kind of a known uh, a known individual with a track record uh, in the agency that he has uh, been working in with information and technology. So we'll see. I mean, it's going to be a big challenge to try to overcome all of not only the negative perception and publicity and and lack of action that has taken place by the agency, all of the hurdles that are that are still there, uh, regardless of the pandemic, and try to sort this out and do it in a very swift and efficient fashion is going to be um, is going to be something that I think a lot of people are going to be paying a lot of attention to, uh, not only uh, inside uh, state government, but certainly the public at large. You know, one difference between the outgoing uh, the outgoing leadership and Shelley Zumwalt, who's coming in as interim director, um, is uh, Robin Robertson was you know from the tech sector. She was from the private sector, and you know, we often you know this is this is kind of something that you know governor still likes to do. He likes to bring these folks in from the private sector and pluck them in and you know and and, and parachute them into these government jobs and say we're going to you know turn this around and run it like a business. And guess what? It just doesn't always work. Uh, it rarely works. And I think that if you know Shelley Zumwalt, even though um, you know she doesn't have at least from from what i can tell uh prove me wrong and and i wish her all the success in the world it needs to be successful for the people of oklahoma um but if you if you look at 
uh, her public affairs and communications credentials. Doesn't seem to be a lot of like running a large bureaucracy, but at least she's familiar with the way government works. She comes from state government. And I think that that's a big plus in her favor and her ability to you know, wrap her hands around one of the most difficult uh, jobs in state government right now. With the end of the 2020 legislative session, all eyes now turn to the Oklahoma primary, only about a month away on top of candidates facing off in the party preference elections. Oklahomans will also decide on state question 802 to expand Medicaid. Neva, your initial thoughts on the coming primary June 30th. Well, I mean, one thing one thing is true is that there are certainly fewer primaries than many might have imagined uh, this political season. And I think those who uh, are incumbents who did not uh, have a primary certainly have uh, breathed uh, 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 much easier, given the fact that there has just the climate and the environment that we're living in. But when uh, there are a couple of races that I think will be fascinating to watch, one on the Republican side, one on the Democrat side in the House. Um, we have a rematch in the uh, Muskogee area house seat uh, with incumbent Chris Snead, Chris Snead running for his uh, first uh, re-election, just having been elected uh, two years ago, against the man who beat him. Uh, and, and so we've got, we've got a fascinating uh, race developing there that, that, again, could be very close. I mean, we have George Fought, who basically uh, he, he's had an interesting run through the, through the House. I mean, he was elected uh, in 2008, the first time beat a Democrat, won re-election in 2010, then lost when he ran for Congress in a runoff uh, in an open uh, seat to Mark Wayne Mullen in 2012, came back to beat the Democrat in 2014 to pick up his House seat again, won in 2016 for re-election, uh, then lost to Chris Snead by 83 votes uh, two years ago, and now has decided to come back one more time and run for re-elect, run for uh, that seat again. And he has two years left on his 12 years uh, of uh, potential service in the legislature. So again, I think this one may be one that goes down to the wire, and it looks like it's going to be a pretty hard-fought race on the, you know, uh, on both sides in, in this particular primary. On the Democrat side, I think the House 88 seat in Oklahoma City, the Jason Dunnington seat, will be fascinating because this is kind of one of those bluest of the blue districts in, in the Oklahoma City area. And you have Jason Dunnington, who by I think most folks' uh, uh, assessment would be characterized as a moderate Democrat, uh, someone who's uh, had a lot of uh, a lot of strong relationships with uh, the Republicans in the in the House, and in fact, uh, at one point there was a lot of conversation, kind of being bandied about um, in inside the building that uh, he might look at switching from Democrat to Republican. Uh, that certainly didn't happen. But he is running. Uh, it, it, the person running against him is uh, currently um, a regional field director for um, uh, you know for an ACLU campaign on criminal justice reform. She's somebody that uh, by her own description is a community organizer, uh, someone who's been involved and worked with the NAACP and Freedom Oklahoma and CARE Oklahoma and a lot of groups that are strong, have strong Democrat constituencies and the ability to kind of put this whole network together might set up in a district that is a strong Democrat district might set up for a very interesting challenge to this incumbent. Ryan. Yeah, I think that, uh, and I'll just pick up right there, as, as, a, as a voter in HD88, the dark money groups have already started to weigh in. I got my first piece of independent expenditure mm -hmm. mail on, on behalf of the incumbent Jason Dunnington uh, there. I think that 
you've got rep and, and, and Neva's assessment, I think is, is spot on. You, you've got representative Dunnington whose last campaign was a hard fought primary and a runoff. Um, and you know, he's, he picked that, he picked up that seat and which is one of, if not the most liberal, the most blue seat in the state. Um, and I think that this is, you know, with, with the, uh, the competition from Maury Turner, who's running uh, at him from the left uh, in a seat that uh, if if a liberal can win a seat in Oklahoma, that ought to be the one. Um, and that'll be a really interesting to watch. Uh, and and how they how they campaign um, in that camp in this campaign where, you know, knocking on doors uh, is you know not really an option. Um, and uh, this is if there's a district out there where if in, in the polarization of face mask and social distancing, this is a district where people can probably expect you to not be on their doors. Um, they want you to, they want you to be away. They want you to make phone calls and, and send, send emails and, and campaign that way. So that's, you know, watch that one for sure. And um, uh, the other one that I would throw out there is representative Shane Jett, uh, former state representative Shane Jett now running for the state Senate against incumbent uh, Senator uh, Ron Sharp over in Pottawatomie mm. County. I mean, that's going to be an interesting race right there. You've got two seasoned campaigners. You know, one both both are going to come at this with, um, you know, I think a lot of campaign infrastructure, finances, uh, their records to talk about. I mean, that's this is a, this is a real heavyweight uh, slugfest over in Pottawatomie County between two, you know, very strong candidates uh, for that seat, and you know, and. In a primary where turnout models are are strange and unpredictable, it's it's kind of anyone's game uh, over there right now. You've got high name recognition for both candidates, uh, and and you know both of them have been around long enough uh, that people really like them and really dislike them. You know they they both have their they both have their friends and they both got their enemies, and they're well, all going to show up to the party. And there is a wild card dimension to that uh, uh, race and primary Ryan, because you have a third person, a third Republican in the race, someone who is a uh, young, relatively unknown first time running for uh, elective office, but someone who had been, I believe an FFA state president, someone who has, uh, you know, has, uh, uh, even at his young age, has has a resume to kind of believe he can launch into this and 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 run a campaign and and uh, make a concerted effort to win. So with three people in the race, uh, this seat is both Pottawatomie County and parts of Oklahoma County. So it's got some interesting dynamics. And you're right, as it sets up. Um, uh, and and as a personal note, having being involved actively uh, in uh, Senator Sharp's campaign, I mean, I certainly uh, would concur with you that this is a race that many um, political observers are paying attention to. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.